Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 21st, 2014. It's going to be one of those programs where we're going to be all over the place. I do not think there is a theme for today's program. If one emerges, it's accidental. Got to get to a few things that I've been kind of putting off. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to God's Word in context. There's all sorts of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to actually take a look at what God's Word says in context to see if the things that are being said about God actually square with what his word says, if the actions being done in the name of Jesus actually square with what God's word says. So today's episode, from time to time, I you know, I've, I've put together these programs where there's no theme, but you know, the majority of the time, vast majority of the time, every episode of Fighting for the Faith has a theological or apologetic theme that I'm that I'm working on, and you can oftentimes backwards engineer it and figure out what it is. Uh, you can, it's kind of like inductive reasoning, if you would. Um, um, but then, often, you know, the, more, more times than not lately, I seem to have been divulging what the theme is. <clears throat> I need to get back to being more secretive about that. <laughs> anyway, today's episode is one of those episodes that we call the stinking pot episode, and, you know, because that's apparently what potpourri means. It's a stinking pot. Um, this means that there's no theme. So if you if you like listening to Fighting for the Faith and trying to figure out what the theme is, if I don't actually tip you off as to what it is ahead of time or during the episode, um, yeah, this this one has no theme. If one, like I said, if one emerges, it's quite an accident. Uh, but uh, I couldn't figure out how to get any of these pieces all to work together in unison. And um, some of the stuff I've been hanging on to, and I don't want to hang on to it anymore, I actually want to get to it. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to begin with a Patricia King update. Patricia King, in the audio that you're going to hear, is going to explain to you um, about her involvement in you know, Rodney Howard Brown's Toronto Blessing Laughing Revival. 
Yeah, no joke. Um, so this, so this is kind of autobiographical on her part. And I think it's worth you listening to and asking the question, why on earth would God, the Holy Spirit, number one, do this? Number two, um, you know, by doing so, launch somebody like Patricia King out into the world of evangelical ministry um, because this is a woman who has no clue how to rightly handle God's word. I think over and over and over again, we have got as we've got to, as the body of Christ, scrutinize these so-called manifestations of the Holy Spirit and see them for what they are. These are not manifestations of the of the Holy Spirit. What Patricia King is going to describe to you is not a manifestation of God the Holy Spirit. It is a manifestation of insanity. It is a manifestation probably of something demonic, not having its origin in God the Holy Spirit. And why would God the Holy Holy Spirit, um, you know, by doing such a thing, then, you know, basically plague the world with Patricia King. It doesn't make any sense um, what you're going to hear. So I I think it's kind of good that she goes back in time and explains this event for us and her involvement in it so that you can hear it from herself. Um, Then what we'll do is we'll take a break. This is kind of a longer segment we'll do with uh, Patricia King. Um, And then uh, when we come back from the break, uh, i got to take a look. We're going to be looking at an article from the uh, uh, Salt Lake City Tribune. Um, The headline reads, Evangelical writer Ravi Zacharias lauds bridge building with Mormons. Okay, something's wrong here, okay? Uh, You know, and I can't... Let's just put it this way. The way the story is written, um, it's a little bit vague to me as to whether or not Ravi Zacharias is the one who welcomed this, uh, is creating the problem. Richard Mao was, you know, involved. Um, There's folks, Mormons are not Christians. They do not believe in the Jesus Christ who really exists. The, the Jesus Christ that Mormons believe in is a false Jesus. We'll talk about that, and then uh, we'll do a Stephen Furtick update um, and listen to him teaching on what to listen for when you pray to hear from God. So um, Stephen Furtick is going to give us you know, insightful tips on what we should be listening for if we want to hear from God. And then in hour number two, I'm going to actually review an Andy Stanley uh, uh, sermon. And this is kind of a fascinating sermon because it um, over and over again, you're going to hear a refrain, kind of a, a something that Andy Stanley says that's kind of this theme that is actually patently false. And if you believe him, um, then you understand that what he's being, what he's teaching regarding wisdom and Christian sanctification, actually isn't what the Bible teaches. So we've got a full program today. I strongly recommend that you uh, make yourself comfortable. And since what you're going to hear is kind of like over the top, bizarre, in in uh, Patricia King telling us her story uh, from the Toronto Blessing Laughing Revival, I I feel it's my responsibility to do this. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. 
drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You've been warned. So, um, if I told you that Patricia King believes that heaven is all about laughing, and she was part of the Toronto Blessing laughing revival up there in Canada at the Toronto airport church that, you know, back a while ago. Yeah, best if I let her explain it to you. Here's Patricia King. Have you been anxious or really stressed out over issues in life and maybe circumstances that you are facing right now? Um, if I were, you're the last person I would go to to try to find a solution to that particular problem. Well, if you're in that state, you have come to watch the greatest show ever for you. Because I believe that by the time you finish this program, all that stress, all that anxiety, all the care for tomorrow is going to lift off of you. And you might even find yourself laughing. You know why? All of heaven is laughing. Uh huh. And where does the Bible say that? This message that I'm about to share with you, I actually preached at Women on the Front Lines. We actually host Women on the Front Lines conferences all over the world. So you can. How sad for all those women. You can go on our website to find when the next one is. But I think that you're going to really be encouraged. You're going to be really lifted up through this message. We'll see you later. Yeah, I doubt it. I want to share a testimony of um, something that happened. Well, see, this is a testimony. It's got to be true because this is her testimony. This is her experience, and her experience has got to be true, right? God is the one who's responsible for everything you're about to hear, right? Wrong. To me, back in 1994, it was January 1994. And um, prior to that time, I was a very, very passionate Christian. I had been ever since I was born again, but I was an extremely intense intercessor. Extremely intense. And I felt it was my duty in God to make sure that the evils of the world were brought into a place where they could not function, could not manifest, and that God's glory would stand, you know, which is a good thing. Excepting when you're so focused by, I'll fast more, I'll do some more fasting, I'll do some more prayer, I'll do some more decrees, I'll do some more warfare. I'm going to go to class and learn 16 more weapons of intercession so that I can really go for it. And you're consumed in the battle, it takes your joy away. And all of a sudden, instead of enjoying life, I'm only just seeing how bad things are. Because after all, I'm an intercessor. I'm an intercessor and I got to see how bad things are. And so I lived in that realm and what was so difficult for me is I'd feel burdens all the time. People say, oh, you look so heavy hearted. I said, I am. I'm carrying the burden. And I called it the burden of the Lord. (laughs) I called it the burden of the Lord. So I show up in a revival meeting And the revivalist, uh, he came during the worship. He stood up on the platform and he said, 
In this section over here, there's a wind that's going to come in a few moments. The wind's going to come. And, um, and this section is, is going to get touched by the Holy Spirit. And I thought, wow, a wind's going to come. That's very interesting. I wonder what he means by that. I wonder what that symbolically means. But in a few moments, the wind came. The wind came. Like a real wind. like, <laughs> And it blew on the section. And we were all crashed down in our seats. Oh, I was a happy camper. I tell you, I was on the floor. I thought, this is amazing. That was actually a real wind, you know? And you could feel the presence of God. It was just, it was perplexing but glorious. I start laughing uncontrollably and loud. I've got a very loud voice. And, and I was laughing uncontrollably and involuntarily. And I was embarrassed. In my mind, I thought, I, 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 I don't want to be laughing. I'm totally embarrassed. There's, this is church. We're in church and I'm laughing. I don't even. Again, my question is why on earth should we believe that this is God, the Holy Spirit acting? Why would God, the Holy Spirit blow Patricia King down at a revival in a church and then cause her to laugh uncontrollably and convulse on the ground? There's, n- there's no example of that anywhere in Scripture. What is this? I know what I'm laughing about. But when I thought of how ludicrous that sounded, I laughed even more. And I just couldn't stop. I was just, you know. And so in my heart, I said, God, what is this? What is going on? Like, I don't feel a devil's got me or anything. It's, it's like, what is this? And in his kindness, he is so kind. He took me in a encounter. I don't know if you want to call it transmission. It was like being inside of, of the situation. I could see things, smell things, hear things. You know, it was like... A- now notice she's not actually telling us something that God's word teaches. She's just exegeting an experience that she claims to have had. A, a living realm. But in that realm, I was sovereignly taken up into the heavenlies and I heard, heard audibly heaven laughing. It was like multitudes of voices laughing. So she was in the heavenly comedy club? As though someone had told a joke at a party that everybody heard and everybody laughed in response. It was like that. Except I didn't know what the joke was. I was offended. How can you possibly be offended when you're in the glory? I was offended because heaven was happy. I mean, after all, I'm carrying a lot of weight. I'm just being open and vulnerable. You're commanded to love me so you can't judge me, right? That, that would put you in a bad place. <laughs> and I am perplexed by... All this laughter, it was like they were having this big party. And I remember thinking, do you not understand what we are dealing with on planet Earth? Do you not understand that people are aborting their children right now? And the homosexuals are trying to pass bills to make it okay. Do you not understand? 
And you're just having a party? I thought you were here to help us. I mean, that was the, the feeling, the sense that was in my mind. I had been so burdened down by all these prayer meetings that I was fasting and praying for, the immorality. There was three pastors that year that committed adultery, lost their churches, the churches split, they lost their family. Oh, it was horrible. One ran off with the other woman, married her. It was, it was just like, oh my gosh, do you not understand this heaven? We've got problems down here. But heaven just kept laughing. Heaven just kept laughing. (laughs) And so he took me into this visionary encounter. And he showed me this altar in heaven that was just a blazing fire. And angels were flying up from the earth with these. So um, Patricia King, she's just like the prophet Isaiah. She's just like the apostle John. She's been to heaven. She's witnessed the angels. She's heard heaven laughing in heaven's comedy room. Yeah, she's just like the prophets and the apostle. These coals, and they would put them on this altar. And when they were in this fiery altar, they got enlarged like these great big, big fireballs. These coals of fire. And then other angels would come and take them out of the fire and fly back down into the earth. And I saw the globe, this huge globe, and there was dark patches all over it. And the angels would take the fireballs and they would throw them against the black patches. And when the the fireballs hit the black patches, I could hear demons screaming and I could see a dispersion of the strongholds of the enemy. And then all of hell. Why should anybody who calls himself a Christian believe any of this? Any of it? Heaven would laugh. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, the angels come with a prayer request. And, and when they come up in this glory, the answers are sent with power and intensity to demolish the strongholds of the enemy. That's why we laugh every time there's a victory, every time there's a victory in the earth, every time heaven sees the victory that Christ came to establish manifest in the earth, they laugh. And he took me into um, other encounters in heaven. And he said to me, he said, we are not anxious about anything. You will not find anxiety in this atmosphere. He said, we live in the reality of the truth. We live in the finished work of Christ. There is nothing to be anxious about. And he said, as it is in heaven... I want it to be in the earth. As it is in this realm, I want it to be in the realm of your heart, in the realm of your mind, in the realm of your life. He says, I want you to live in the earth in the same way as the atmosphere is in heaven. And he says, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of seriousness. No. He said, there's fullness of joy. 
in the presence of the Lord. And he says, there is nothing too difficult for me. And everything that you see in the earth that is an adversity, everything that you see in the earth that is difficult, everything that you see in the earth that is hard, that's supposed to make you laugh. And and what passage of scripture says that? There isn't one. In fact, we're often told to pray, not laugh, when we're suffering. Huh. Where's she getting this theology? Oh, from her trans vision that she claims to have had. The reason it's supposed to make you laugh is because I'm bigger than it all. I am the solution. And I and I died to bring the victory for it, to bring it into alignment, and it will come because it's not over until it's over. Right. So it's a given. It is a given that all things are going to come into God's alignment. That is what heaven lives in that reality. The earth is not perfect. And there is, there is going to be worse things happen in the earth than what mankind has ever seen. The Bible says that. If the Bible says this, it's true, but you have to read the right mail. And you just got to laugh your way through it. Because on the other side of it, it says that we are to arise and shine because our light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon us. And there is half of a verse, half of a verse in Isaiah 60, half of a verse. So you're telling me that you're going to twist this um, verse, half verse from Isaiah 60. Got it. Out of the entire chapter that says darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness the people. It is important to understand that. But it shouldn't be all consuming. What should consume believers is the environment of heaven that we get to bring into the earth. Uh, where in the Bible does it say we get to bring the environment of heaven into the earth? Nowhere. doesn't say that anywhere. Now we have to know there's darkness because we're supposed to expel it. But that's why heaven's laughing. That's what's supposed to be fun. Ah, uh, so the expelling of darkness is supposed to be fun. And that's why... Heaven laughs. Dare I play more? Let me fast forward to the uh, end of the video. Here's how this particular video ends. Because, you know, Patricia King, you know, she wants to practice what she preaches. And since heaven's all about laughter, she wants to set a good example for her online video audience of, you know, of a woman who actually can walk the talk, if you know what I mean. So literally, here's how this video ends. person. Oh, you'll know who you are when you hear this word. You were baking bread one day, and for some reason, you needed a fly into the bread. (laughs) And you had guests for supper.
word is hilarious, and you'll know who you are when I share it. Okay, here it goes. You were trying to make some bread one day, and you were going to impress some company, and so you were kneading the bread and everything, but what you didn't notice is that you needed a fly into the Now, what you can't see is that the the video itself is talking about the the benefits of laughter, that it boosts your immune system, helps your mind be sharper, and things like that, while she's completely lost her mind. (gasps) Okay, here we go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's it's not even that and apparently this is all to be blamed on God, the Holy Spirit. That profound a word or anything. Okay, here we go. Okay, I have a word of encouragement for someone, and you'll know who it is when I share this. This is so funny, but um, a number of years ago, you were, you were um, wanting to impress someone who was coming over for dinner, and so you were making them bread. What you didn't notice is that you needed a fly into the bread. <laughs> Okay, I think I've had enough. I'm officially weirded out and creeped out. That wasn't God the Holy Spirit who was responsible for that. That was utter and complete nonsense, bordering on, if not crossing into the territory of the demonic. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we got a Robbie Zacharias update. What is going on there? We're going to find out, and a Stephen Furtick update. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the word of knowledge, and 40 healed doing the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Are you can. 
Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. Put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. Oh, you put your left foot in, put your left foot out. You put your left foot in, you put your left foot out. Put your left foot in, put your left foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You take your First with the arms, uh, nothing, nothing real effect. But then as soon as I just start, we start doing the whole, we'll put your left foot in, your right foot in. Both of my knees, you know, one at a time, I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain. I said, and you said, start checking yourself. I just squat down. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord, for new knees. In yes. Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life. And a couple, about a week ago, my back had gone out and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore. Uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. I put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. And you shake it, 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 and you shake it. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap 
write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, um, if you're laughing uncontrollably in church, it's probably not God the Holy Spirit who's moving, probably the devil. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, moving along. From the Salt Lake City Tribune, the headline reads, Evangelical writer Ravi Zacharias lauds bridge building with Mormons. Okay, um, so when you read a story like this, I mean, my first impression is, okay, um, am I... Am I getting a correct understanding of what's going on because Ravi Zacharias is trying to build bridges with Mormons? And what kind of a bridge is he trying to build? Um, in, and then the other question is, or has the media in Salt Lake City um, skewed the the content of Ravi Zacharias's message in order to make it look like he's building bridges and and turning it into something that it's not? The problem is, after reading the thing, I can't tell because um, clearly there's well, there's some of the second going on where the media is kind of you know spinning this. But yeah, let me read the story and I'll kind of comment along the way. This is definitely confusing for me, and I'm you know I'm very discouraged and disappointed by um, Ravi Zacharias at least not offering some kind of a you know, clarification about. Um, you know, how the media has covered this particular event, at least not thus far. All right. So in November 2004, um, Ravi Zacharias, an evangelical author and Christian apologist, became the first preacher of another faith in 105 years to speak from the pulpit of the famed Mormon tabernacle on Salt Lake City's Temple Square. On that historic occasion, about 5,000 evangelicals and Latter-day Saints sat side-by-side listening to Zacharias expound on religious principles in the accessible style of the popular Christian writer C.S. Lewis. Uh, The event promised to be the birth of a new era between the two groups which had been at odds. Um, Yeah, um, they should continue to be at odds because Mormons worship a different Jesus. They do not believe in the biblical Jesus, you know, and I'll kind of explain as you know, why that is. Listen, just because somebody uses the name Jesus doesn't mean they, they worship Jesus. If you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any amount of time, then you're, you're familiar um, <clears throat> with uh, our uh, Build-A-God sketch, 
where you know they, they somebody goes into the build a god shop and builds themselves a deity, and at the end of it, they name their deity Jesus. Well, the Mormons have done something uh, similar to that. The, the, the Jesus they believe in is not the biblical Jesus. Now, let me give you a passage here. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, I'll start at verse 1. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, Now, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Now, do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the Apostle Paul here is is, is concerned for the you know, people in the church at Corinth that the, the, the devil, the serpent, is going to deceive them in much the same way he deceived Eve by his cunning. And here's what he says. For if someone comes and proclaims to you another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, well, then you put up with it readily enough. And this is not, he's not praising them for this. He's chastising him. He's rebuking them for this. Indeed, I consider my that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So the apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the opening verses, makes it clear that there is a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And Mormonism falls into the category of believing in all three of those types of things, a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. The Jesus that Mormonism believes in is not Jesus Christ, God the Son, second person of the Holy Trinity, who has existed from eternity. You know, um, Instead, the Jesus they believe in <clears throat> is the... Um, the natural son or the son of relations between Elohim and one of his spirit wives um, near a place where there's a mysterious star named Kolob. And Jesus's brother is Lucifer. Uh-huh. And uh, and so, you know, Jesus hasn't always existed. There was a time, there's in fact probably a long, long, long time that uh, Jesus didn't exist, you know, um, because according to Mormonism, our God, the God they believe in, Heavenly Father, Elohim, um, he was once a man, and he became a God by being obedient to his God, and on and on and on and on, infinite regress there. Because in Mormonism, salvation is uh, that you become a deity. Mm -hmm, that's what they're all about. Um, so Mormons do not believe um, in the biblical Jesus. There should continue, in fact, we should continue to send missionaries to Mormons to call them to repentance and faith and trust in, in the real Jesus um, who has existed for eternity and who is not the, the half-brother of Lucifer or any other such nonsense. But we continue. Okay. Um, so um, let's see. So the event promised to be uh, the birth of a new era between two groups which had often been in odds. Quote, we often seriously misrepresented the beliefs and practices of members of the LDS faith, said Richard Mao, the then head of Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And he said this in his opening remarks. It is a terrible thing to bear false witness. We've told you, uh, we've told you what you believe without first asking you. What a completely miserable statement. I mean, Richard Mao is absolutely patently false. I learned Mormonism from Mormons. Uh-huh. That was all part of my study to learn, you know, to learn how to do counter and cult ministry. I learned Mormonism from the Mormons. And for him to make such a statement is flat, flat out false. 
And the statements that, you know, the, and the teaching that Walter Martin would put out there exposing what Mormons believed oftentimes was done in, uh, in concert with people who were former Mormons. I mean, the, uh, anyway, this is kind of dredging up a bad memory here from 2004, what Richard Mao said. But the, see, this article here is starting back there in 2004 and sees Ravi Zacharias's appearance as somehow building off of that appearance when Richard Mao was present. But we continue. So this weekend, Zacharias is back for a bridge-building encore. The native of India was scheduled to speak to students at LDS church-owned Brigham Young University on Friday, as well as area pastors. He also planned to meet with two Mormon apostles according to Reverend Gregory Johnson, leader of Standing Together, a network of Utah pastors that sponsored Zacharias' visit. On Saturday night, LDS Apostle Jeffrey Holland will offer an official greeting from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Salt Lake City Tribune, interviewed Zacharias on Thursday morning a little America, uh, at Little America in Salt Lake City. Here are some of his answers. Uh, question, what are the main points you'll be covering in your speech at the Mormon Tabernacle? I will be offering a biblical blueprint for what a nation is intended to look like and what happens when a strident, rabid, secularized secularization takes place. In one sense, the best way for nations is to be a secular society, but one that gives opportunity for contrary worldviews, including religious beliefs, to be freely expressed in the marketplace. But what secularization has done in America has actually evicted any religious or transcendent worldview that has become uh, the uh, reigning dogma of any interaction of values and ethics. You're not allowed to invoke the basis of absolute or ultimate purpose and meaning or destiny for life. It has become a purely pragmatically driven way of living. To me, the most dramatic implication of the process of secularization is the loss of two definitions. Sacredness of life is no longer given due credence. What has done, uh, what it has done to children in our society is the devastating thing I see happening. The second consequence is secularization. It is the stifling of free expression. Relativism has become an absolute only uh, protecting the rabidly secular worldview. These consequences are in direct contradiction to the intent of why this nation was formed. How do we then bring about a change in society? To my way of thinking, those who claim to be followers of Jesus have to set their house in order. I think belief will ultimately be tested. See, there's a problem right there. To my way of thinking, those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ have to set their house in order. And this is being said in the context of where Mormons and Christians and evangelicals are all together under one roof. Man, talk about confusing. This is this is horrifying. Um, <clears throat> so both credibility in its theory and consistency in its practice, why we believe what we believe is going to be crucial—the uh, crucial test for the future—rather than come as at at it by saying I'm going to now change society. We need to understand what secularization consciously has done, and what we need to do is evaluate the reasonable reasonableness and uh, livability of our faith. Uh, our faith. That's a weird pronoun for him to be using in the context where there's Mormons and Christians together. What will be your message at Brigham Young University? It will be in keeping with faith, family, and freedom. I'm one of those foundational thinkers. It is very easy to deal with symptoms and get upset about it, but the symptoms are ultimately expression of the roots in which uh, this thinking is based. When we ask about the problems of evil and the problem of pain, the question of meaning, they all begin with one assumption, that we know what life is all about. C.S. Lewis said, when a ship goes onto the high seas, it has to answer three questions, how to keep from sinking, how to keep from bumping into other ships, and why is it out there in the first place? Uh, the first is personal ethics. The second is 
social ethics. The third is essential ethics. What is life's purpose? I feel that every deviation in family, be it in sexuality, be it in culture, whatever comes from our definition of what it means to be human, unless we understand where the differences lie, we will always be attacking the symptoms and never get to the root problem. Have your views of Mormonism changed since you came here? Is there anything that has changed? It, if there is anything that has changed, it is that Latter-day Saints' willingness to enter into dialogue and conversation on these matters rather than shutting the door and remaining impervious to academic interaction. Obviously, our beliefs are dramatically different. They know that. We know that. But I look at, at it this way. I am a Christian apologist. I engage Muslim audiences around the globe. I have spoken in many of their major universities. They invite me on the basis of my writing. They know I'm a follower of Jesus. They know my worldview is different. But they also know that I will engage cordially and hopefully accurately with them. I was born and raised in India. I speak on many Hindu campuses, Buddhist campuses, stridently atheistic campuses. Despite my beliefs being foundationally different from the Mormon world's starting point and their emerging uh, emergent beliefs, I think unless we are willing to talk and dialogue honestly on this, you never get anywhere. Building a bridge doesn't mean surrendering ground. In 2000, see, this, this is the thing. It's confusing because some of the pronouns he used, and then he says that he doesn't want to surrender any ground, and then, the, the, then you know, the way the media has covered this article, then it goes, you know, now we get a flashback to 2004, uh, quote, in 2004, when Richard Mao gave a greeting, he said that evangelicals should apologize to Mormons for misrepresenting their beliefs. Do you share that view? Do you think that was appropriate thing for him to do? I have never talked to Richard Mao about that. I, it got a lot of publicity. I'm not sure the context from what uh, from which he was coming. The fact is Christians have been branded with all kinds of names by various groups, including how the Mormon branded Christians right from the beginning. Does everybody stand up and apologize for the way you've been ex- expressly treated? My philosophy is you never judge a system by its abuse. You judge a system by what is claimed and what is believed. Mistreatment of people is is there on every side. I'm not sure... Richard Mao chose the right venue in which to say that because it stirred up more issues than answered questions. Whenever you make a statement like that, it ought to be made around a table with discussion and interaction. He didn't answer the question. Mm. So what is your hope for the relationship between Mormons and evangelicals? As a believer in the final revelation of Jesus Christ and knowing they respect and honor who Jesus is, I would hope in dialogue we can come to biblical conclusions on who the person of Jesus Christ is. Obviously, the terrain is strewn with minefields of words, concepts, and ideas that cause us to stumble. I commend Mormons, and I am grateful for the courage they have inviting someone like me. It takes a lot of trust and an incredible amount of trust and risk-taking. I'm honored by that kindness. So, so here's the deal. I mean, after reading this, I mean, is this an apologetic endeavor on the part of Ravi Zacharias to evangelize Mormons uh, by engaging them in dialogue? Um, or is this a, quote, bridge-building thing uh, because, you know, the Salt Lake City Tribune, <laughs> they sure are painting it differently. So this is one of those things where, you know, I'm not exactly sure what to think about what Ravi Zacharias said. And, and you know, he said some stuff that was confusing, um, very um, non-definitional. He didn't answer an important question and at the same time answered it in such a way that it made it look like he was engaging in evangelical endeavors. But clearly the Salt Lake City Tribune was interested in seeing this as some kind of a bridge-building thing by quoting Richard Mao from 2004. (sighs) Yeah, see, here's the deal. I don't have a problem with Ravi Zacharias or anybody 
um, taking the gospel anywhere uh, in Salt Lake City uh, to uh, preach the truth to Mormons. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with is um, basically doing it in such a way that those who um, are covering the event uh, are uncertain about what it is that you're doing and can interpret it or misinterpret it um, to mean that you're doing, you know, that that somehow some kind that you know things are cooling off, or you know, and that you know the relationships are getting better between Mormons and Christians, and that we're heading towards some kumbaya moment, moment where uh, Mormons and Christians can all just say, "Oh, we all believe in Jesus, and that's the only thing that matters." And that's how the Salt Lake City Tribune covered the story. But from what I heard from Doctor Zacharias, it doesn't seem like that was what he was doing, but then again, the way it was covered, I couldn't exactly tell, and that's the problem. You see what I mean? Moving along, it's time for a Stephen Furtick update. Maybe this will be clearer. You walked up to the pulpit like you are a man of God Your hand strategically cut to the new style The beaver was making hot You had one eye on the camera As you watched the crowd applaud All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor You'd be their mentor and so vain You probably think the Bible's about you You're so vain I bet you think the Bible's about you Don't you, don't you Heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right, so uh, Stephen Verdick has uh, weighed in and uh, has decided to give us, you know, a quick little video that will help us learn what to listen for when we pray so that we can actually get direct revelation from God. Oh, man. Yeah, um, kind of got to go back to my time-honored point here. Let me kill this music. Yeah, here's my time-honored truth. If you want to hear God speak to you, open up your Bible and read it. If you want to hear God speak audibly to you, Read your Bible out loud or go to a church where the pastor actually reads the word and preaches it. Yeah, <clears throat> just, you know, that's the way you hear God's voice today. But uh, without any further ado, here's Stephen Furtick and what to listen for when you pray to hear from God. Here we go. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain. 
in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Yeah, this is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11, the story of Elijah. You know, he flees from Jezebel after the whole uh, Mount Carmel incident didn't go too well for her prophets. They all got killed. Um, and uh, and so prophet, uh, Elijah flees for his life to, um, to you know, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And, uh, and, you know, God says, what are you doing here? And uh, the Lord commands him to go stand by the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And this is the passage where we get that famous, uh, you know, thing where, you know, God wasn't in the earthquake or anything like that, but the still small voice. The problem is this. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive text. None of us are told to go and listen for the still small voice in that like God's going to speak to us the way he spoke to Elijah. So this is a hermeneutical twist here by taking a descriptive text and turning it into a prescription that, you know, that apparently because God spoke to Elijah in a whisper, he's going to do the same for you. The Lord is about to pass by and God shows up in some pretty spectacular ways here. You know, it says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. I mean, we go to church and we get a chill bump and we're like, man, that was God. But this Bible passage says, like, this wind blows out of nowhere. Mountains are flying and God's like, yeah, but I'm, that's not me. Not meaning that God didn't cause it. Meaning that God's like, that's not the way that I want you to overcome the fear. Like, that, that would be, that'd be cool. That'd be great. But that's not, that's not the way I want you to overpower your fear. Elijah. So then, watch this. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. That'd be a cool way to show up too. But, but the Lord said, no, that's not, that's not how I want to. How does God overpower Elijah's fear? I want to know. After the earthquake, verse 12, came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. So we got earth, wind, and fire. God ain't in none of it. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty clever, if you ask me. But but after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, put his cloak over his face, went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. When he got out of the cave, he heard the voice. And the voice said to him one more time, remember, it's a whisper. What are you doing here? I was studying this passage. I've read it a bunch of times. I was wondering, why didn't God show up in the, in the wind? Elijah needed a reminder of God's power. But he'd already seen God's power on the mountain. He already knew about that. Why didn't he show up in the earthquake? Just a reminder that God's got the whole earth at the command of his one word. He can make the earthquake. But, but Elijah had already seen the results of God's power. And why, why not the fire? That's pretty cool. I mean, if I just made fire out of nowhere, I'd, I'd want the credit for that. It's hard to make fire. Have you seen Cast Away? How hard it was for Tom Hanks to make fire. It's hard to make fire out in the middle of nowhere. But God whispers. I say, God, why did you whisper to Elijah when you got him out the cave? 
Uh-huh. So now we've got the question, why did God whisper to Elijah? That's God. That's Furtick asked God this directly. I wonder if God whispered back to Furtick. God said, I whisper because I'm close. Uh-huh. All of that for that. Hmm. So while Stephen Furtick was reading this passage... He asked God for direct revelation to understand why was God whispering. And God obliged, and he whispered in Stephen Furtick's ear, I whisper because I'm close. Uh huh. And he gets an applause line for that. He just added to scripture. The devil shouts lies. I whisper truth. Uh huh. So there you go. So what do you want to listen for when God's speaking? You listen for the whisper because the reason why God whispers is because he's <clears throat> so close. And yet there isn't a biblical passage that says that. But don't worry. I mean, you know, Stephen Furtick, I mean, he and God are on such close terms that I'm sure that that's who revealed that to him. I mean, it couldn't have been the devil doing that, right? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a sermon review. We're going to be reviewing an Andy Stanley sermon. Yeah, I haven't done that in a while. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. 
Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. To a fighting for the faith sermon uh, review time. It's been a while since we've done a Andy Stanley sermon review, and there's something he says in this sermon over and again that is the problem. I'll point it out along the way, and I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but you need to be because the difference on the sermon good the sermon is not the difference between right and wrong but right and almost right yeah here let's do this right though <laughs> just use the right two different ways in the same breath The good, the bad, and, uh, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via North Point Church in Alfreda, Georgia. Alfreda, Georgia. Yeah, that's right. Andy Stanley presiding. It's from his Ask It sermon series, and the name of the sermon is entitled Musical Chairs. Musical Chairs. Yeah, you're going to hear a sermon that's chock full of law that's supposed to be applied and put into use by people in order to help them avoid bad results in their life. Makes sense, but there's a problem. That's not exactly what Christian sanctification is. Again, the difference between right and almost right is the thing that makes the difference. And I've got to point out the recurring refrain here that will actually clue you in as to why this thing goes off the rails. Wow, wow, wow. All right, so let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Andy Stanley and his sermon entitled Musical Chairs. Here we go. Well, it's good to see everybody today, especially those of you who are at our Atlanta area campuses, our strategic partner churches around the country. You're watching online in your pajamas. We can see you. We have a little screen down here in the front. And uh, just kidding. Aren't you glad? But that doesn't make you a little bit nervous, doesn't it? Yeah. And those of you who are watching online for your move, we're glad that you're here as well. We're in the middle of a series. And before we jump into the content, I just want to remind you that if this is interesting to you or you think, wow, I wish my husband were here, my 16-year-old son or daughter, I I wish my brother-in-law was here, you can send them to justaskit.org and today's message and this entire series will be here forever as long as you have electricity and if you're in a small group we associate we uh, write some questions up so if you want to discuss this content with your family or in your small group or your dorm or wherever you live you go there download the questions you get a pdf and you'll look smart and um, lead people through the questions now the the name of the, the series as we said is ask it and the subtitle is the question that answers just about everything so really this is entire series is about one single question. But the reason we're spending so many weeks talking about one single question is that our hope and our prayer is that this question would become a question you ask for the rest of your life. And this is important and that you would ask it at every stage in your life. 
Because at every stage of life, this question has different implications. But at every stage of life, this question sheds light on every other question, especially as you think about questions related to decision-making. This question will save you a lot of money. This question will save you a lot of time. And maybe more importantly, this question will save you a lot of tears. In fact, your greatest regret, I know we say this all the time, perhaps your greatest regret would have been avoided if you had asked this simple question and then acted on the answer. And the question is, and I want us to say it all together, is your greatest regret could have been avoided if. Okay, now, is Christianity all about helping you avoid your greatest regret? Now, don't answer too quickly. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. But what would be somebody's greatest regret if you understand what the Bible teaches about humanity and our state as we come into this world? Okay, now to answer the question, let's take a look at a passage, Ephesians chapter 2. I'll start at verse 1 and read a little bit here. And as for you, you Christians in Ephesus, you once were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If you were born dead in trespasses and sins, by the way, you were, and you were born an object of God's wrath like the rest of mankind, what would be a human being's ultimate mistake that they would rue for the rest of their lives? Answer, not repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because the consequences of the, quote, ultimate mistake is not that things go poorly in this lifetime, it's that you spend an eternity in hell. That's the problem, okay? Now, that's not what Andy Stanley's talking about here. He's going to give you tips and wisdom to apply to your life, and let's see if what he says agrees with Ephesians chapter 2. Is the big mistake, you know, oh, you can avoid your big mistake. Uh, the problem is, is the big mistake is not the one that the Bible talks about. And by the way, it doesn't talk about it as a big mistake. It's called original sin. Big difference. We continue. Up on the screen. You ready? Let's say it together. The question is, what's the... One more time. What is it? What's the... There you go. That's the question. Now, so the question is, what's the wise thing to do? If you, you can just stop yourself and in, in the middle of a decision, in the moment, just ask, what's the wise thing to do? You can avoid like the, the biggest mistake ever in your life. But see, Christianity isn't about helping you avoid the biggest mistake ever, if that's what you mean by it. It's about forgiving those who were born under the biggest mistake ever and the consequences of it. Adam and Eve's sin. Uh-huh. We broke it down and we kind of teased it out. We kind of went into some detail and we began to ask this question in three different dimensions of our life. And here's kind of the the full-blown version of the question. Here it is. It's in light of my past experience, 
my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams? What is the wise thing for me to do? In light of my past experience, because as we said last week, my past isn't your past, and your past isn't my past, and there's some things that should influence my current decisions based on my past that you don't need to factor in. The same is true for you. In light of my current experience, my current circumstances, you just got married. You just got a new job. You just finally overcame an addiction. You just hit your one year mark, whatever it might be in light of your current circumstances. What's the wise thing? Not for everybody in the world. What's the wise thing for you to do? And then we talked about our future hopes and dreams in light of where you want to be someday financially, in light of where you want your marriage to be someday, in light of where you want to be. In the... you, you do realize there's going to be a lot of people in hell who were financially well to do. There's going to be a lot of people in hell who had like really decent and respectable, great, lifelong, loving marriages. Uh-huh. Your kids, what, in light of your future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing, not for everybody to do? What's the wise thing for you to do? Because your past is different. Your current circumstances are different. And your future hopes and dreams are your future hopes and dreams. In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, my future hopes and dreams. What about, why is it he's talking about f- Christian future hopes and dreams as somehow that uh, a Christian's hope and dream has to do with this temporal life? Christian hope, New Testament hope, the hope the apostles told us about is in the hope of our redemption, the hope of Christ's return, the hope of being with Christ for eternity and seeing him face to face. That doesn't happen the side of Christ's return or our death. Wise thing, not the right thing. This is better than right. Not the legal thing. This is better than legal. Not what can I get by with. This is way better than what can I get by with. What is the wise thing for me to do? Then last week at the end, I gave you some homework and it was pretty simple homework. I just said, ask it. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do the wise thing. But as I said, you owe it to yourself to know what the wise thing to do is. And if you think about your past, your current, your future hopes and dreams, and you ask this question before every decision, before every invitation, you know, with, with, with every single financial decision, if you begin to ask this question, and then you decide, well, I think I know what the wise thing is to do, but I'm not going to do it. Then that's important. You've learned something about yourself. You have learned, and I know this is kind of harsh, but it's part of my responsibility. If you ask the question, what's the wise thing to do? And you think you know what the wise thing is to do, and you decide not to do it, you've learned a very valuable lesson about yourself. And here it is. You don't have your own best interest in mind. Uh, No, it's way deeper than that. You are a sinner and your sinful nature is uh, ruling you. That's what the scripture teaches. And you should know that about yourself. And then you need to ask another question. If I don't have my own best interest in mind, who does? And where is that going to lead? Now, you don't need to do anything. It's none of my business. It's your life. But you should ask the question. You owe it to yourself. Every invitation, every opportunity, every decision. What is, if I were to choose to be wise, what is the wise thing for me? Yeah. Um, see, the thing is, you've got to understand this also. You're not saved by doing the wise thing. Your doing the wise thing does not create a, a right standing with God. Because Scripture tells us that our good works not our evil ones, our good works are as filthy menstrual rags. Mm-hmm. In other words, even your, your best good work, your wisest thing that you've ever done is so racked with sin that it would send you, you've earned hell by your best good work. Uh-huh. But he's not preaching that. 
Now listen carefully. See if you can start to hear the refrain that I'm going to tell you uh, that I've been warning you about that's coming. Now, today, um, moving ahead, that's all last week. Um, we're going to look at some options because obviously you don't have to do this. In fact, you don't ever have to do anything, I suggest, or that the scripture suggests. So what we're going to do today is look at the options, and here's why. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon, who was purported to be the wisest man who ever lived, um, and, and even in his day and age, he was so wise, as we're going to see in a few weeks, that um, different kings would send their representatives to talk to Solomon when they had a difficult question. He wrote the book of Proverbs. Um, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. If you've never read the Bible and you think the Bible's just rubbish, I dare you to read the book of Ecclesiastes, especially if you're over 40, because you'll read the book of Ecclesiastes and go, don't tell anybody, but I think I agree with this guy, okay? Now, he also wrote the book Song of Solomon, which um, you weren't even allowed to read as a teenager. You'd had to be, you know, older to read Song of Solomon. So if you think the Bible's boring, I promise you've never read the Song of Solomon, okay? So he gives us three really, really incredible pieces of ancient literature, and all of it's just full of insight and understanding and wisdom about life. But in the book of Proverbs in particular, Solomon says, hey, there are four different kinds of people. There are wise people, you know, people who look at the past, the present, and the future and make, you know, the best and wise decision. He said, but there are three different other categories. And so today I want to talk about the three other categories. Now I got to warn you, this is offensive. Okay. So if, if the reason you haven't gone to church for a while is because you get offended, I'm going to confirm your suspicions today. Now I'm going to make the claim, even though you haven't heard it, uh, I'm going to make the claim this isn't nearly offensive enough be offended. In fact, you're going to get in the car and you might be mad at me. In fact, about five minutes in, you're going to start having imaginary conversations with me. And let me just go ahead and help you. You are smarter than me. Okay. You're smarter than me. So if you think, well, if I, you know, you're smarter, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to listen because nobody can read your mind. Nobody's going to follow you to the car. There's not going to be a quiz. You know, we're not going to email you at home, but I just want you to listen. But I got to tell you, for some of us, what I'm about to cover is offensive because Solomon's about to tell us, if you don't opt for wisdom, you accidentally opt for some other things. If you push back on wisdom, understand this, understand, to walk away from wisdom is to walk towards something else. And many of us, perhaps you, have never considered what you are backing into when you say. Now notice, he's basically setting it up that people are good people. It's their decisions that result in them being badish or bad consequences coming to their life. Is that what Scripture says? I just read Ephesians chapter 2. Is the reason why you sin because you make unwise decisions? Or does Scripture teach that the reason why you continue to make unwise decisions is because you are by nature a sinner? Huh? It's the second one, not the first, and it makes all the difference in the world. I know what the wise thing to do is. I'm just not going to do it. That's what they say the wise thing to do is, but I don't believe them. I think, hey, yeah, 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 tell me all about wisdom. I got you, but you're an idiot. We're going to get to the you're an idiot people at, at the end, okay? So this is a little bit offensive, but here's all I want you to do as we talk about these three options. I just want you, no elbows, okay? No elbows, probably married people, no elbows, okay? If you're sitting next to your teenager, do not cut your eyes over there. Don't roll your eyes, don't shake your head. In fact, don't even mention this. This is just between me and your teenager today, okay? This is just, this is us. It's not, you know, your whole network of friends and family and your boss, okay? All I want you to do 
is I want you to picture if you're not opting for wisdom, which one of these other options you may have opted for accidentally. All right, accidentally. Now, accidentally. So if you're sinning, it's you're opting for sin accidentally? No. You do those things because you're born dead in trespasses and sins. Like I said, he's not nearly offensive enough. He's not actually giving the right diagnosis of the problem. And as a result of it, he's not letting them know or even beginning to hint at the possibility that their condition is fatal. Their sinful condition is fatal. You know, and it's, and it is. Okay. Do, Do any of you all watch Downton Abbey? Okay, now, if you don't watch Downton Abbey, you should. If you're watching it and you're not up to season three yet, I, we're, my wife and I are working our way through uh, season three. We'll be getting to season four shortly now that it's, it's out. But um, it's, it's just a fascinating, fascinating program. But um, what happens is, is that in one of the episodes in season three, one of the main characters, uh, the daughter of Lord Grantham, is pregnant and she's about ready to give birth. And, you know, because, you know, she is the daughter of a very important earl, the Earl of Grantham, uh, the, the uh, Lord Grantham invites a well-known prestigious doctor to come deliver a, the baby, right? And uh, the country doctor who is in the in the township that they're in has been kind of slighted. But um, the fa- the mother invites the country doctor in to see how her daughter is doing as as you know as labor is progressing. And the country doctor, who's not nearly as um, <clears throat> well known and prestigious as the well known famous doctor is, who's supposedly the one giving you know who's going to be there to deliver the baby. Notices the notices symptoms in the young woman that she as yes, she's about to give birth, that um, that she has a, a very very d- direly dangerous condition, and um and I forget the name of it, but um anyway, it, it's kind of neither here nor there. But this condition is so so dire that if they don't get her to the hospital and remove the baby via C-section. What's going to happen is is that you know after the baby's born, um, you know, this this girl is going to go go into seizures and it, it'll be fatal and die. There's no there's no uh, cure for this. Well, the doctors have a fight, which leads to a fight with um, you know between you know the fam- different family members who are siding with one doctor and another, and then the other family members who are siding with the other doctor, and of course everybody goes with the well-known prestigious doctor. Of course he knows what he's doing. He would never give uh, you know a, a false you know diagnosis of the problem, and as a result of it. The prestigious doctor was wrong. He said, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. This, she doesn't have this condition. She doesn't have this condition. The baby's born, and you know it's, it's smaller than expected. And no sooner is the baby born and things seem like they're in the clear when it turns out that the bumpkin country doctor happened to be the guy who was right. And the daughter goes into a grand grand mal seizure of seizures, and it's so intense that she stops breathing, and it kills her, dead as a doornail. Okay, terrible story, right? But this is what we're listening to here is kind of like that. I mean, Andy Stanley is a major general, 
in the uh, seeker-driven church planting uh, leadership world, right? He's the guy who wrote the book Visioneering. He, when he, I mean, he's famous. He's the famous son of the, the other preacher, Andy Stanley, right? So, I mean, I mean, of, of course he's got a good pedigree. He, he's got, he preaches at a mega church. And if he tells people that they're okay, that sin is just because they don't make wise decisions, then he's right, right? Wrong. Wrong. He's absolutely dead wrong. He has failed to properly diagnose the problem, and he's made the problem to be something that is just a flesh wound rather than a fatal mortal condition. He does not understand the depth and magnitude of human depravity, and as a result of it, he's, his preaching is going to give a topical um, you know, solution to a problem that is fatal. This is like treating cancer with a Band-Aid option that Solomon talks about, not the first option, these aren't really in order of how you find them in the scripture, but in terms of the order of presentation, the first option we're going to talk about is the simple person, the simple person. Now, the simple person, the, the, the reason they're not wise, it's not because they're against it, it's because they're too young to know any better. The simple person is the naive person, or we might use the term the clueless person. They're just clueless. They're not bad. They're not evil. They're not dumb. They're not trying to ruin their life. They're just clueless. The the simple person lacks something that older people have. They lack experience. The simple person simply lacks experience. Now, Taylor Swift got this exactly right. Okay, she just summed the whole thing up for us when she said this. When you're 15 and somebody tells you they love you, you're going to what? That's right. You're going to believe them. Did not everybody know the rest of this lyric? Is it just me? Okay. (laughs) Did you know I can play this song on the guitar and I know all the lyrics to this song and several other Taylor Swift songs. It was so interesting. This song came out when my daughter was 15. It was like our theme song. Okay. And I, if I had known Taylor Swift or I'd had access or had her email address, I would have written her a note. In fact, I thought about saying, thank you so much for this song because it's an extraordinarily powerful song to 15 year old girls to say, Hey, When you're 15 and some cute boy says, I love you, you're going to believe him. And you're not going to believe him because you're dumb. You're not going to believe him because there's something wrong with you. You're not going to believe him because you're a bad person. (laughs) You're going to believe them because you're 15. It just goes with being 15. Now, you've heard the statement, to err is human. That's absolutely false. God did not create human beings that way. This is a result of our sinful nature. So even young people who commit sins and make dumb decisions, it's a result. The reason why they're doing that that is because they were born dead in trespasses and sins. They were born with the condition of sin. That's why they do these things. But this is important. It is a warning because simple people, their problem is, our problem is, this is offensive, maybe your problem is, you lack experience. You lack experience. Now, the passage, we're not going to look at it today because it's long, but if you want to read something fascinating, the the best passage in in the scripture that deals with the simple or the naive, Solomon wrote, it's found in Proverbs chapter 7. And let me just summarize it, then we're going to move on to these other categories. In this passage, he describes a simple man, a young man, a boy, who is walking into a mess. And when you read it, it's like foreshadowing. It's like watching a movie, and the soundtrack is ominous, and you're about to see the main character do something really 
stupid and you've, you've been watching television or you've watched a movie and something in you wanted to stand up and say, don't do it. You ever felt that way about your favorite character and everybody in the theater looks at you like, it's a movie. But you know, you're just, you're just so wrapped up. Well, you read this passage of scripture and here's this kid. He thinks he's in for a good time. And, and, and Solomon says, but actually he's like an ox to the slaughter. He's like a bird caught in a snare that what he thinks is good is going to be bad. And all of us older people, we read it and we go, oh, you're so naive. You're so clueless. You're so simple because it's not a matter of being bad. It's just a matter of the fact that you just laugh. Did you catch that? Not a matter of being bad. He's assuring these people. Oh, it's not because you're bad. He's lying. This is a misdiagnosis. This is spiritual malpractice. You have misdiagnosed the problem. It is precisely because they are bad. Now, the, the simple person, and again, this is a little bit offensive, okay? The simple person responds to wisdom. If you say to a simple person, hey, that's not the wise thing to do, or that's, you know, you really need to think through that, or hey, in a lot of your past experience, current circumstances, you know, the simple person responds like this. They say this. They say things like, nothing's going to happen. I mean, my kids say this hundreds of times. Nothing's going to happen. And the preacher, teacher, pastor, father in me wants to go, okay, how can you guarantee me the future? Because if, if you can give me the secret of guaranteeing the future, we're going to make so much money. So tell me, how do you know with certainty that nothing bad is going to happen? How do you have that kind of certainty about the future? But that's the naive person, the clueless person, the simple person. It's like, mom, dad, you know, whatever, whatever. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. And the older, wiser person is thinking about all the things that could happen. Ah, uh, Nothing's going to happen. I can handle it. I can handle it. Okay, well, see, I'm concerned because when I was your age, I didn't handle it very well. I'm concerned because your older brother didn't handle it very well. I'm concerned because the world is full of people who have consequences in their life because they didn't handle it very well. Oh, you're just overreacting. You're overreacting. Well, do you know why parents overreact? It's not just because we're parents. It's because we anticipate the future. And I'm I'm not being critical. This is just a reality. When you're 15 and somebody says they love you, you're going to believe them because you're 15. You can't help it. It's not bad. It's just a, it's not a bad thing. It's just like an is thing. Here's the thing. If you are 21 or under, especially if you're under, here's the thing. You lack experience. Now that's not your fault. You're 21. And all of us people who are older than 21, we wish we were 21. We do. We envy you. In fact, sometimes when we get upset with you, part of it is we're upset with what you've done. And then part of it is we're just jealous. And our jealousy, you know, we love to catch you doing something stupid so we can kind of load up and kind of our inner child thing gets all out of whack, okay? Because you're cool. You can wear stuff we can't wear. We try and our spouses are like, no, you can't wear that. Yeah, but it looks so good on her. Okay, she's 20, okay? Anyway, or he's, you know, you, you, you just can't do that, all right? So you, you, here's the other thing. You, you haven't faced consequences. So of course you can't factor it in. You have never been in debt to the point where you're not sure how you're gonna make a house payment or you're not gonna be able to pay your rent or you're not gonna be able to pay, pay your car. You, you are not afraid of debt the way that we understand you should, you should be afraid of it. You've never been addicted to anything. Now you might be addicted right now, but don't know it, you're too young to know. You just lack Are these not sins and the consequences of our sinful nature? You've never had your heart kind of not just broken, 
but so broken up, you're not ever sure you'll trust another guy. You'll never trust another woman. You have never allowed, you've never seen the consequence of not being careful with your sexuality to the point where it's almost damaged you to the point where you're not sure you could ever experience real intimacy with a man. Not careful with your sexuality? You mean they've committed adultery or they've engaged in premarital sex, all of which are sins. Notice the flippant and shallow way he just tosses these sins out as if they're just kind of like errors in judgment. You just, you've just never been there, and we don't want you to be there. So when people who love you and are older than you say, hey, look, I, I'm not trying to be critical, but you just lack experience. I need you to trust me. It's difficult because it's not your fault when you're 15 and somebody says they love you. You're going to believe them. Now, here is the amazing thing, and then i got to move on. If you're 21 or under, I, I just wish you would believe me. And this is why I loved doing student ministry and talking to high school students. This is why I love to talk to college students. Here's the cool thing. You can have something that the rest of us can't have. And you can have something that if we would love to go back and be able to have, and you have an opportunity, but it's going away, you can have it both ways. You can have the benefits of youth. And the benefits of wisdom all at the same time. You can have the benefits of youth. You're young. Your life's ahead of you. You can wear skinny jeans. You know, you can do your hair. You can color it different ways. And everybody's like, well, she's 18. You know, whatever. He's 22. You know, you can, you have all the benefits. You can hang out in coffee shops all day long. I don't know what you do. You know, I mean, you can do, you can do all the cool things that 20 something year old people get to do. And you can be wise at the same time. You do not have to allow your simpleness that you can't help, your cluelessness that you can't help. I know it's offensive. And you're, the fact that you're a little bit naive when it comes to certain things. That Now, notice something here. In the Proverbs, what does the Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, all of the Proverbs, well, you're not even going to begin square one, in truly being wise until you fear God. You're contrite and sorry for your sins, have felt the pressure of God's wrath against your own sin, and have been brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can't even begin to make move number one towards true wisdom without being a penitent believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So without that major thing, all of this is just going to be a topical ointment on a mortal, fatal disease. We continue. After wreck and ruin and drive your life, you do not have to learn everything the hard way. You can have it all. You can have your youth and you can have wisdom. But you will have to seek Wisdom. It will not come naturally. You'll have to ask for it because you haven't lived long enough to recognize it. You say, well, yes, I have. That's so offensive. If it doesn't come naturally, doesn't that prove that we're by nature sinners? Because the natural thing to do is sin, right? you, this is offensive. Now, this is interesting. I've been teaching this. I've been teaching this for over 25 years, this kind of stuff. And I've been teaching it long enough to where there are people in our church who are married with kids that the first time they heard me teach it, they were in high school. 
And it's so funny whenever I circle back around and teach this stuff, they say, I remember the first time you taught it. And I have had especially young ladies say to me, Andy, I remember as a high school kid being so mad at you when you told me I was naive. And then they giggle and say, but I sure was. I hope you teach this when my kids are in high school, right? Because we live and we learn. So here's the last thing I want to say to all of you. Simple people, okay? I know it's so offensive, okay? It's like a Bible term, you know? I wish I could come up with something better. Okay, here's the last thing. Please, 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 please. Don't trade what you want most for what you want in the moment. Now, let me just tell you, the little murmur that kind of went over the audience, that wasn't the simple people. That was us older people going, heck yeah, I would love to be able to go back and be 21 or 19 or 18 or 22 or my first year in college or my senior year in college. I would love to go back and be so focused on my future hopes and dreams that I didn't waste my time and trade in the moment for my future. And here's, I'll say it one more time, okay? Then I'm done. You can have it all. You can have your youth that we're jealous of, and you can have the advantage of wisdom, but you're going to have to ask for it. You're going to have to do the thing that nobody else in your culture is going to encourage you to do. You're going to have to stop at every invitation, every opportunity, every decision, say, okay. In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, What is the wise thing for me to do? The second category that we find in the scriptures and that Solomon talks a lot about, and this is offensive too, is the fool. The fool. Now, the difference between the simple and the fool is the fool knows, the fool knows, but the fool just doesn't care. Um, Remember that category from Proverbs is the fool says in his heart there is no God. So the fool is the one who doesn't fear God, doesn't trust in God, isn't penitent for their sins. That's who the fool is. But notice he's not setting the category up correctly. Don't you know that's going to hurt you? Yes. You're going to do it anyway? Yes. Why? I don't care. I don't give a, and you can just... No, it's not that they don't care. It's that they don't believe in God. That's the problem. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's why they don't care. With whatever kind of people you hang around with, you know, I don't give a use the word that you use. You just don't give us like this isn't new. Look, it's written right here on the side of the package. I can read. Oh, I mean, wait, wait, wait. in your first marriage, when you did this, it didn't turn out well. I know. Thank you for that information. I was there for my whole life. I've been there for my whole life. Thank you for that information. And so that doesn't make you want to do it differently. No, and actually, it's none of your business. Oh, hey, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait! Are you, you know, everybody that does that, I, I know. I mean, everybody else that's invested in that, I know. Everybody else that I know. I mean, so you know where this is going to lead? Yeah, and you're going to do it anyway. Yes, it's my life. Now, this is offensive. Solomon says, "You're a fool." Now, here's what's so interesting. <laughs> Some of you hear me say that, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't care. (laughs) Andy, that didn't even offend me. I know I'm a fool. 
Hello. In fact, this is the first relevant thing you've ever said in church, okay? This is the first time I could identify with anything you've said. It's the first thing you've said that I believe is true. I'm a fool, and my wife knows better than to elbow me. We've already talked about this. Now, so let me, here's what Solomon, the wisest man in the world who had more money than you can ever dream of and did things that you'll never do. And, you know, thousands of years from now, nobody's going to be talking about you. We're still reading this stuff, okay? So he's a couple steps ahead, okay? All right, here's what he said. This is offensive, but just, you know, get your attention. As a dog returns to its vomit. Let's just all picture that real quick before we move on with the rest of the message. You got that picture in your mind? You ever seen a dog do this? It's like, it's true. So fools repeat their folly. It's like, wait, last time you did that, you know what happened? Yes, I remember. Again, I was there. And you're going to do it again? Yes. Why? Weren't you at church Sunday? I'm a fool. This is what fools do. We return to our vomit. He says this. He says, a fool finds pleasure in wicked schemes. But don't you know where that leads? Yes, but it's fun. Okay, remember last time it took you three weeks to get over that? Yes, but it was fun. Okay, last time, you you know, same thing. He's cute and he doesn't have a job and he's living off his mama's and dad's money. Okay, this was just like your last boyfriend. You're going to do this again? Yes. Why? It's fun. It was pleasurable. Okay, no, no. It's like returning to vomit. No, no, it's not vomit. It's pleasure. Now, this is amazing. You can, we can all see this in other people. In fact, you're sitting here right now going, oh, I wish he was there. But let's, let's wait before we pass the message on to somebody else, okay? If you have an area of your life where you say to yourself, I know this is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Solomon would say, in that area of your life, you're a fool. That's, the, that's what a fool does. A fool knows the... That area of your life? Notice he's compartmentalizing sin now. So just in this area of your life, you're a fool. But the fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. So in other words, the fool is the one who breaks the first commandment. You will have no other gods before me. They break it by denying that there is a God or denying God and make themselves their own gods. And so rather than preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins and a crucified and risen Savior who died for fools like me and like you, because the definition he's using here, this applies to all of us. And and what Andy Stanley tried to do is like soften the blow. Well, in that area of your life, you're being a fool. No, if you're a fool in one area of your life, you are a fool, which means you are a sinner. Again, band-aid for a fatal condition. Right and wrong, and they just don't care. A fool even knows the consequences of doing wrong. They just don't care. I mean, I mean, if you, you know, if you're, if you have a friend who's a judge, or if you're a judge and you're in the courtroom and you see see people back in your courtroom for the same thing over and over and over and over, they're not this. They're this. You're a fool. If you've already had a DUI and you're still risking it, you're a fool. If you have habits that are slowly destroying your body, come on, you're a fool. You say, Andy, you're, that's offensive. I'm never coming back to church again. Yes, you will. Let me tell you when you'll come back. You'll come back one day when you experience the cure for being a fool. 
The cure, the cure is different. See, the cure for... So the cure is a crucified and risen Savior and the forgiveness of the sins committed in foolishness because of our sinful nature. Is that the cure? The naive person or the, the, you know, the, the simple person is time. Just give me time. It's like we all finally grow up and go, oh, now I know when you're 15 and somebody says that they love you, you're not supposed to believe them. Because you're, you know, I got it. I grew up. But the cure for the fool, unfortunately, is tragedy. That's what Solomon says. <laughs> That's what some of us have learned. We have the fool has to learn the hard way. You can't teach a fool because they already know. You can't say, don't you know that A plus B, you know, a plus B leads to C? They go, I know. In fact, I can show you pictures. I, I know. I don't need an information. Is it going to help me? Unfortunately, the cure is always tragedy. But here's the last thing that we're going to move on. You see, for those of you who would say, well, I don't care. I don't care. I don't give up. You know, I don't care. Here, here's the thing that you should at least know. You don't have to change. Again, this, we're just wanting you to ask the question. Is that, as we, and we talked about this in our last series. You see, in your mind, you say, it's my life, I can do what I want to. It's my body, I can do what I want to. It's my time, I can do what I want to. It's my money, I can do what I want to. And I'm not hurting, hurting anyone else. And that's just not true. And this is where your foolishness has blinded you to your selfishness. Because of what Proverbs says as well, what Solomon says as well. It's one of our verses we talk about all the time in our student ministry. Walk with the wise and become wise for a companion or a husband or a wife or the father of, the mother of, the brother of, the sister of, the employee of, the friend of, a fool suffers harm. See, the tragedy of being a fool, the tragedy of knowing right and wrong and deciding I don't care, isn't that you just hurt yourself. It's that eventually you will hurt someone else. And you can say all day long, well, it wasn't my intention. Yeah, but they're still hurt. Isn't the tragedy that you're eventually going to stand before God someday and be thrown into hell? Isn't that really the tragedy? They're meant to, but they're still hurt. But I was just, but they're still hurt. Because the companion of fools suffers harm. Kids, can I go back to, you know, kids for just a second? This is why your parents freak out about your friends. This is why I freak out about my kids' friends. Because my kids may be the wisest kids in the world. But it is the companion of fools who suffer harm. It's the companion of fools who suffer harm. Because they don't care. And if they're not going to take care of their body, listen to me. They're not going to take care of your body. And if they don't care about their finances, the last thing they're concerned about is your finances. And if they don't care about their future, the last person they're going to be concerned about is your future. The fool is the person. Notice everything is focused on the temporal. What has happened to the eternal consequences of sin? Why are you not preaching those? I know, I know, I know. But I don't care just going to do it anyway. And then the last category, this is the extreme. This is the person you just don't want to work for. This is the person hopefully you're not married to, is the mocker, the mocker. Now, the mocker is, is also called in some translations of the Bible, the scoffer. The mocker is the fool on steroids. The, the, the mocker is the, not only do they know the difference between right and wrong and they don't care. This is the, this is the man, this is the woman that's going to scoff at the people who do what's right. Now, we don't have many mockers or scoffers in church. 
In fact, you wouldn't even invite your mocker or scoffer friend to church because as soon as they find out you go to church, it's like, oh, really? <laughs> That's just great. Woo, do you wear short pants? You know, do you have a pen? You know, do you carry your Bible? Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. It's like, whoa, yeah. I mean, this is, this is the person that's critical. This is the person that's condescending. This is the person that you're all, this is, this is what they do. You're always off balance with a mocker. You're always off balance. Just when you think you're in good with them, they knock you off balance. They control the conversation most of the time. They control through their condescending attitude. If you work for somebody like this, you're just miserable. You never know where you stand. They always come off as if they're the smartest person in the room and they're not. But they use the knowledge they have to control, 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 and they're critical, 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 and they control their world through criticism, and they control their world through cynicism, and they control their world and they control their relationships by being condescending. And if you're married to somebody like this, I pity you. And if you work for somebody like this, I pity you. And if you are this person, (laughs) not only do you not care what I'm saying, You've already decided what you would like to say to me in private. In fact, you're having that conversation right now because you're smarter than me. Now, let me sum this up and then I want to read you something interesting. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Here's here's what he says. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Not just, I don't care, but insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Now, you, again, you're, you're thinking of somebody right now because you, they just, they don't listen. They don't even argue well. You can't really even engage them in a conversation. What if, what if, what if? They're not good debaters. As soon as you bring up something critical or as soon as you bring up something negative, they just pounce because they control through their cynicism, their criticism. They leverage whatever intellect they have and they think, they always think they're the smartest people in the room. And you can't win with him. In fact, I I won't even show you this first because it's so harsh. But Solomon, the wisest man in the world, says, just throw him out. There's nothing you can do. There's no hope. He says there's no hope. That's not God speaking. This is Solomon speaking. Say, hey, in my experience, if you have a mocker, good luck. That's not God speaking? Isn't what Solomon wrote inspired by God the Holy Spirit? So isn't God speaking through Solomon right now? Weird that he makes that distinction. Because you're not going to talk them into changing. You're not going to show them information where they go, oh, I didn't know that because they're not interested in knowledge. Whether it's insecurity or just pure arrogance or something from their past, they just have to control through their cynicism, their criticism, their mockers, and their scoffers. And they're almost impossible to have a relationship with. That's the third option. So here's what, here's what he says. If we can kind of summarize all of this. And I, again, I want to read you something. Here's what he says. Correct the simple and they won't get you. Huh? What? It'll hurt me. That's not going to hurt. Huh? Get in trouble. I'm not going to get in trouble. Huh? Consequence. There's no consequence. It's not that they're bad. They just say, they just don't get it. Correct a fool. They'll just ignore you. I know. I know. I know. What else you got? That's it. Okay. Going to do it anyway. Correct a mocker and they're going to hate you. Correct the wise, Solomon says. And they will thank you. Because the wise seek understanding. The wise think about everything within the context of the broader context of the future. 
The wise know, as we're going to see in a few weeks, the wise know what they don't know. And they are not afraid to listen to people who do know. The wise don't allow their arrogance and their overblown self-esteem and their sense of having to control everything. The fact that they're the husband, they're the father, they're the man, they're the boss, they're the director. Isn't it interesting that the way he's describing the wise sounds a lot like people who are bearing fruit of repentance and they're bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life? The woman who's worked her way up and therefore I got to kind of put on a little bit of edge. Everybody knows who I am. Wise men and women don't allow that to drive their relationships. They are learners because they're constantly trying to get either better or if you're a Christian, they're trying to constantly move closer and closer to their heavenly father. Now, no, um, it's impossible to be wise biblically according to the real biblical categories without being a Christian. Here's the thing. Eventually, eventually, the simple, the fool, and the mocker, eventually, whoever's sitting in these seats, eventually they all need wisdom. At some point along the way, they find themselves in a situation where they can't you know, think their way or talk or criticize their way out. At some point along the way, every, anybody sitting in any of these chairs, they eventually need to be able to make the right decision, work things out, move forward, get out of debt, break an addiction, have some friends, rescue a marriage, make a second or third marriage work, and some, you know, rest, you know, reestablish contact with their kids. At some point along the way, everybody who sits in these seats, they need wisdom. The problem is, Solomon says, if you sit in one of these seats long enough, eventually you'll get to the point where you can't even recognize wisdom. That when somebody comes along and says, actually, here's the solution to your problem. You sit here long enough. Not only will you reject it, you won't be able to recognize it. In fact, he says, you won't even be able to hear wisdom. You'll never even be able to find wisdom. You can be in one of these seats for so long that your situation is almost hopeless. Not from the standpoint of God's love. This has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do with your human Experience. So here's what he does. At the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, this is so cool. At the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, Solomon pictures wisdom as a woman who's walking through the streets of a town or a village. And she's calling out saying, who wants wisdom? Who wants wisdom? Come and get it. Come and get it. And he personifies wisdom as a woman who's calling out to people in the streets. And I want to read you this little, you know, several verses from Proverbs chapter 1. Then we're going to wrap this up. And I just want you to listen as you imagine where you might be. Now here, this is very important. What I'm about to read. This is not God talking. This is wisdom talking. This is Solomon saying this. I have a... Um, this is found in God's word. Wouldn't that be God talking personified as wisdom? Hmm? Much about life. I've observed simple. I've observed the fool. I've observed the mocker and I've observed the wise. And here's the cause and effect. Here is the outcome. Here's just what happens in life if you sit there for too long. So let me read this to you. I want you to imagine where you are. Not somebody else, you. And then I'll wrap this up. So here's what he says. He says, out in the open, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. In other words, wisdom is available to whoever wants it. And then she asks this question. How long, how long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long, she says, how long are you going to sit in the seat? How long? Are you going to just sit there till you learn everything the hard way? 
How long, simple, will you sit in your simple seats? How long will mockers delight in their mockery? How long are you going to hide behind the fact that you can just criticize everybody into submission? How long are you going to do that? Another year? Another job? Another marriage? Another busted up relationship with kids or grandkids? How long, mockers, are you going to allow your criticism and your cynicism to drive your life? And, and fools hate knowledge. How long, fool, are you just going to hate knowledge? I know, but I don't care. I know, but I don't care. I know, but I don't care. How long are you going to do that? How long? You need to put it on the calendar. I'm just going to be a fool for another year, and then I'm going to seek wisdom. How long? How long are you going to do this? To the, for the rest of your life? Then listen to what wisdom says. Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my... Notice it says repent. Key key verb here that should clue you in as to what's going on in this passage but he's not preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins thoughts to you i will make known to you my teachings it's available but but since you refuse to listen when i call and no one pays attention when i stretch out my hand since you disregard all my advice and do not accept my rebuke I, in turn, this is, a, this is a challenge, this is a threat. I, in turn, will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will laugh at you when disaster strikes you. You sit there long enough and you ignore the wisdom that's available to you. When disaster finally strikes, wisdom says, I will laugh at you. Because you had an opportunity and you turned your back on it. I will mock when calamity mockers you think mocking is great you love to control the conversation through your intellect through your cynicism through your criticism well you just wait wisdom says one day you'll need me and i won't be there for you and i'll be the one mocking when calamity overtakes you when calamity overtakes you like a storm when disaster this is so strong when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind when distress and trouble overwhelm you in other words and what would be that distress and trouble the day of judgment, finding yourself in hell on the last day. I'm just saying, look, I'm warning you. You sit there for very long, you're going to pay. And when you begin to pay, you're going to want to go back and you can't go back. And when you begin to pay for all of your, you know, your foolishness and your mocking and continuing to just be simple and I don't want to grow up and I'm Peter Pan and, you know, I don't ever have to do anything. He, she says, look, eventually you're going to need me. But it's going to be too late. I won't be available. To you, when it overwhelms you. Then, she says, then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Now, pause just real quick. Okay. One of the heart. The fear of the Lord. Did not choose the fear of the Lord. Repentance and the forgiveness of sin, again, alluded to here. But he completely is oblivious to it. About being a pastor. One of the heartbreaking things about being a counselor. One of the heartbreaking things about caring for people like many of you do. Is when people who intentionally sat here for too long finally decide they want to fix their life. And they sit down and they tell you their story. And they say, help me. And you listen and you think. You never say it. But you listen and you think two things. Why did you wait so long? And number two. What you want you can never have in this life. What you want, you can never have. You have done permanent damage to your life. 
to your relationships. And yet Christ's blood covers all of it. The thing you can have in this life and eternal life begins when you are brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of, the sin, of your sins. The thing you can have is forgiveness from God and eternal life with him forever. Because God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All the irreparable damage that you've done, Christ has suffered and bled and died for. And yet, what this this like this is a message of no hope unless you quick make the decision to make wise choices. And yet, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and he's not preaching that. Just to your soul, not from God's perspective, within the context of this life. Because you just stayed there too long. And you knew it. And now you want somebody to be able to talk you through a remedy to something that has nothing to do with words. It has to do with decisions. Because I don't want to grow up. I don't care. And don't talk to me. You're an idiot. Then they will call out to me. I won't answer. They will look for me. They won't find me since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Since they, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Listen, you're sowing, 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 sowing. And when you begin to reap, a counselor cannot erase the, the you know, cause and effect consequences of sowing and reaping. It's just going to happen. But Christ does by doing it on the cross because he takes all the reaping of our sowing on himself. Huh. God kept a record of wrongs who can stand, but with him there is forgiveness. Therefore, he is feared, the psalmist said. No amount of money, there's no amount of counseling that can fix it because you reap what you sow. And, as you- and yet the gospel is that you don't reap what you sow but that God will forgive you even now. And if you sow as a fool and as you sow as a mocker, you're going to reap. There's a harvest that's coming. Yeah, and if you remain in, you know, in persistent sin and unbelief, the harvest is hell. If you're a mocker, you think, I can control outcomes. I can control outcomes. I can control outcomes. No, you can't. Because there are certain things you can't fix. There will be things you never are able to experience. Because you were too arrogant to admit that your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, your friend, your roommate was right. And yet there's forgiveness in Christ, even for those who've destroyed every one of their relationships. They'll eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes for their waywardness. And I'm almost done. For their waywardness, for the waywardness of the simple will kill them. And the complacency of fools, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, will destroy them. But, 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 here's the good news. You see, everything I've read so far should just scare the chair out from underneath you, shouldn't it? It does, because it's all law and you haven't given me any hope whatsoever. I'm the one preaching the gospel here, not you, Andy. I hope so. But whoever listens to me, wisdom says, come on, I'm giving you one more opportunity. I'm giving you one more chance. I'm calling, calling, calling. It's no mistake you're watching. It's no mistake you're listening. It's no mistake that... This is all law. There's no good news here. I'm calling. Whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear. 
And yet those are promises that are really only given to Christians who've been brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So, this is why we want you to ask it. In light of my past experience, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams, regardless of where that leads, what is the wise thing for me to do? In light of my past experience, in light of my current circumstances, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Mockers, that means you have to admit you're not the smartest person in the room. Fools, that means you got to start caring because it's not just about you. It's about everybody who loves you and depends on you. And simple, it means there's nothing wrong with you. You have the opportunity of a lifetime. You can have it all. You can have it both ways. But you're not going to get there by yourself. You've got to ask it. In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, my future hopes and dreams, God, what is the wise thing for me to do? Repent and be forgiven by Christ's atoning, sacrificial, penal, substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the middle of it. You can't even set your foot on that path till you're on your knees asking for God to forgive you. And he will because Christ has bled for you. This is the gospel, and it's the gospel that was completely missing from this message. Oh, the good news of making a decision to be wise, it's not good news at all. It's bad news because it's all law, no gospel. You see what I'm talking about? What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>